Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 280 with Kimberly Powell. I think you'll love this chat with Kim because she is drawing from rich, rich veins of data associated with leaders, CEOs, what got them hired, what got them to succeed, and what can aid us in the rise to power. So you'll learn, one, where likability can help you and hurt you, two, the four critical behaviors linked to successful CEOs, and three, brilliant CEO tactics to rapidly accelerate your decision-making. So if you'd like to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we've referenced, it's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F280. And while you're at awesomeatyourjob.com, I hope you'll check out some of our handy resources. One handy resource, I think, is the magnifying glass right there in the navigation bars. You can click it. And with all 280 episodes transcribed, odds are good we've covered something related to what you'd like to hear. And you can resurrect a prior episode based on just one phrase you remember a guest saying, or search for the issue that's near and dear to your heart at the moment. And if you don't find what you're looking for, hey, shoot me an email, pete at awesomeatyourjob.com. And let's try to find that guest who has that wisdom to help you where you need some help. Now, here's Kim's story. Kim Powell is a principal at GH Smart. She serves leading Fortune 500 senior executives, private equity firms, and nonprofit leaders in the areas of management assessment, leadership coaching, and organizational change. She co-leads GH Smart's research on first-time CEOs and is passionate about supporting leaders and accelerating their effectiveness in new roles. Big thanks to Kimberly for sharing her wisdom with us, and big thanks to her sponsors. Check them out. Here's Kim. Kim, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Thanks for having me. Well, I learned a little bit about you and that you one time played a championship football game in the Notre Dame Stadium. What's the story behind this? <laughs> yeah, strange factoid, right? Uh, most people are familiar you know, with Notre Dame's obsession, if you will, with American football, but it may be less well known that the participation rate intramural football on campus is extremely high. So I didn't know how to catch a ball before I started college and got roped into my intramural team and we had a fabulous team. So the championships were in the Notre Dame stadium. We played like the regular football team. We had a mascot and cheerleaders and three out of my four years won the championship. And I have a bag of grass before they moved to turf somewhere somewhere in a box in the back of my closet but it was a fun experience well that is cool yes well my wife went to notre dame and uh that's always a little bit of the joke it's like how do you know someone went to notre dame (laughs) (laughs) they probably have a plaster on their clothing they uh, are watching football every saturday yeah some of that was a surprise to me but certainly the collegiality of the game and the willingness to take someone who couldn't catch and turn them into a wide receiver and a kicker i was that was fun it was it was it was a good experience that is cool and so speaking of experience you've got loads of it over at gh smart and we interviewed a colleague of yours randy street from there way back in episode 30 so for those who are newer listeners and, and didn't catch that one what is your company all about yeah so gh smart is a leadership advisory business so 
the core of what we do is assessing senior leaders. And in an assessment, what we are doing is looking for the fit of a given leader to a particular job experience or job situation. So we're, I personally spend most of my time supporting boards in selecting CEOs, uh, as well as CEOs in selecting their teams. And, you know, we've branched out probably since you spoke with Randy. Uh, so a good, I would say, half, 60% of our business is that core helping on key talent decisions. And the rest we've branched out to do more broader leadership development, CEO succession. I do quite a bit of my work in the private equity space supporting on human capital diligence prior to deal close. So we've we've certainly grown a little bit, I think, since since episode 30. Yes. Well, that's so cool. And so have we. And well, I, I always love it when there is a rich, rich research base behind uh, the stuff that you're doing. And, and so, so first, maybe while we're talking about fit, I would love to hear in broad strokes how you think about that on the macro level, because I imagine you could break it down into numerous competencies and indicators and uh, cultural parameters. But sort of how do you think about a fit? Because sometimes the word fit is really just a euphemism for he or she didn't do a good job. It wasn't a good fit, you know, but, <laughs> but you mean something different. Yes, yes. So critical and I guess core to our methodology is what we call uh, first developing a scorecard. And this is really sitting down with the board of directors or the CEO or the hiring manager in some cases and stepping back to say, what are the critical, call it five to 10 key outcomes that absolutely have to be delivered for you to have a smile on your face that this, this role was successful. And we get pretty granular to articulate what those outcomes are. Ideally, a good chunk of them are measurable in quantitative ways. And we also get into how those outcomes need to be delivered. And in that way, we get into some of culturally what things work, what things don't work, what are most likely the biggest reasons why someone might fail at a given role. And then what we do is in that four to five hour in-depth behaviorally based assessment, we sit down and go through the entire career history, including education in, in early years for the various candidates. And we're looking for behavioral patterns. What we want to see is an individual who has operated in similar context and delivered the similar rate, size, pace of outcomes that this particular role is expecting to define success. Okay. Understood. Yeah. And so obviously, to your comment, it's not just, hey, <laughs> they, uh, they just didn't work out or I didn't enjoy working with them. It's, you know, we are really looking for somebody who has a high probability of delivering kind of, if it's expanding international growth by 30% by opening the doors to two new countries, for example, you know, we would be looking for behavioral patterns and underpinnings where they've done that in the past in different contexts. They have exhibited the opportunity the agility cross-culturally, those types of things, to sit down with them, the hiring manager and say, look, in these contexts, they've successfully done it, or in these contexts, they haven't, and, and guide them towards making you know, choices where you're putting people in situations where their strengths can come to life, and you're identifying early potential 
developmental areas, that could hinder them from success. And a lot of the conversation is what can you do to put the right supports in place, whether that be other people on their team, whether that be types of measurements, whether that be development coaching on the job training, that will help this individual increase the probability of delivering on those outcomes. Understood. Well, well that sounds like a ton of fun. <laughs> that sounds like a, a cool yeah. job to have. <laughs> I was going to say, the best part is I get to hear these fascinating stories. <laughs> and it's really incredible to, to be a witness to you know, people's amazing accomplishments and how they address setbacks and how they bounce back from that. And you, know, you, you do really quickly start to see some patterns of success, which the reality is we, you know, we gather things that go really well. We gather a lot of things that don't go well. And we hear how people talk and internalize and approach that. And you know, for me, stepping in you know, uh, almost five years ago, it was fascinating that we had not adequately, in my opinion, taken full advantage of this amazing assessment data set. So my prior experience, I mean, I'd done writing and research and my background in strategy consulting, and I stepped in and said, this is a rich, rich mine opportunity to mine this data in a way that could be really useful for aspiring leaders, managers out in the world. And teamed up with one of my colleagues who had that same intention and started supporting a research effort, which we called the CEO Genome Project. How do we decode what makes a CEO? And conducted a bunch of research over a number of years and ultimately delivered some insights that we thought were worthwhile telling on a broader stage. So hence the idea of maybe we should write a book. But it was really after already uncovering some interesting nuggets that we thought would really be useful for aspiring leaders. And only then do we decide to embark on the marathon of putting it to paper. Well, and put it to paper, you did. And the book is called The CEO Next Door. And by the way, excellent title. It harkens to The Millionaire Next Door, which is one of my favorite (laughs) books, full of insights and counterintuitive data-driven goodies. So, uh, and you deliver some of these uh, within uh, this work. So, so can you share, what are some of your central findings here? Yeah. And before I go there to the title, actually, one of the things that sparked the desire to write this book was in our assessment work over the years, we realized what we were seeing in Amazing Leaders didn't necessarily match up with, if you pull your latest Fortune Forbes name, your article about leadership, and you get this portrait <laughs> publicly in the media of this you know, pantheon of charisma, amazing strategists flitting from Davos to the next multicultural uh, summit of talent, you just get this picture that they're larger than life and an iconic kind of heroic set of leadership skills and and capabilities. And that does not match up with what we've seen, what I've experienced, what we've experienced as a firm. And when you dig into the covers and you get closer to these real CEOs, like the CEOs, if you go beyond the Fortune 500, which usually is what's profiled out there, and look at the 2 million CEOs over, call it, you know, a size of over 5, 10 people Uh, companies, you realize they're real humans that make mistakes, that do also amazing things, but they feel much more accessible. And the closer you get, 
the more it opens that possibility for more of us to aspire to larger platforms of leadership where we can amplify our positive impact on the world. And that was really the kind of purpose-driven, I guess, motivator for the book for me was unlocking that. If I could transmit that opportunity to more people, I think we would have a larger base of leaders out there wanting to change the world. And I feel like we could use that right now. Oh, I love that. That, that is inspiring. And it's so true when you you talk about the the myth or the kind of picture of what we think of when you see a CEO. I just chuckle a little bit whenever I see those magazines or like Shark Tank. It's like all of them, (laughs) it's like they love to fold their arms in front of them. I've noticed that's like the the, the CEO super powerful. Like this is what I look like. Ooh, like you're a, a superhero. And yet I remember when I was at Bain, the very first time I was in a meeting with a CEO of a billion plus dollar company, I thought, oh my gosh, that's the CEO. I'm, I'm going to be in, in the same room. I was, I was so sort of excited and nervous and curious what this sort of mythical person would be like. And then he just like listened very well and carefully to all the things we were sharing and just asked the most fundamental of questions like, does this number include the benefits or just salary of like, oh, the benefits? He's like, okay. You know, and, and it was like... <laughs> oh, it's just a normal guy. <laughs> yeah. It's so true. I mean, we, in our research, what we found is we interviewed about 100 CEOs just to complement the quantitative research that we did to bring the stories to life. And what we found is 70% of them did not know they wanted to be CEO until typically the role just before or potentially two roles before CEO. When they got close enough to work directly with the CEO and see what what is it actually like? When you start to break down those myths a little bit and see reality, and they, they realize, huh, well, maybe I could do this. Like, maybe this is something I would be interested in. And so, yeah, it's something where you think people are destined for these roles, and the reality is it's not true. I mean, back to your original question on the kind of the main, the main themes. One of the main themes is the behaviors we saw that differentiated high-performing CEOs were all buildable. I mean, they're all buildable muscles. The things that popped out of the exploratory quantitative research were not intrinsic things that you're born with. They're things that these leaders honed over time, and they're muscles that you can build. Not, I mean, they're not easy. It's not like it's a walk in the park. But I was really encouraged to see that these are things that you can practice and get better at. So that was one of the key the key themes or key findings. The second is what gets you hired is not necessarily what drives performance. I guess it's not surprising. We know there are biases in the hiring process. That's certainly well chronicled, but it came through in our research as well. And I would say the last thing we talked about is just this, the rule is more accessible if you kind of increase the aperture and look at a broader representation of CEOs. And our data set is, it extends across sizes, across industry sectors. It is much more representative of you know, the, the, the CEO next door, <laughs> as opposed to the Fortune 500. Um, and so in that, you do see that, you know, the myth isn't necessarily reality when you get closer to the CEO. We know that this is intriguing. And so uh, let's, let's talk about each of those a bit. You mentioned they're all buildable muscles. And, you know, recently we had uh, Gary Bernison from Corn Ferry on the show. And I was so intrigued to get his take as I, I'm, I'm the kind of dork who will, will plumb through their for your improvement competency matrix and note that I'm so intrigued by how they've cataloged, you know, some competencies are much harder to develop than others. And I asked Gary to, you know, put a little bit of um, context on that. And he said, perhaps 200 times harder than others to develop. And so 
So I'd love to get your take on, we talk about they're, they're buildable, but it's challenging. Just how challenging? Yeah, these fall in kind of the middle. Yeah, yeah this, <laughs> these fall into the, the middle set, I would say. I mean, the things that are really immutable that are hard to change are obviously the stuff like basic IQ capabilities. I mean, there is work out there that says that's uh, shapeable at some level, but man, that's, that's really hard to fundamentally change that multiple. And again, some of this is how much are you looking to change and how much do you need to change, right? To be effective for what you want to do. In this conversation, we're going to define success as growing in your role, but success doesn't have to be CEO, right? There are plenty of successful people who are not in that role that I admire. So I do think it also depends on how much you need to improve to be effective. And I would say the four behaviors, just to call them out, that were statistically significantly different for high-performing CEOs compared to low-performing CEOs were decisiveness. And this was all around the speed and conviction at which you make decisions, not necessarily being perfect or right or fully correct on all of your decisions. The second was adaptiveness, your ability to change personally as well as drive change and, and adapt your organization to the needs of the market and the shifting consumer or competitive context. The third is reliable delivery. So this is the ability to consistently deliver against expectations. And the last is engaging for results. And this is really about your ability to manage a very diverse and increasingly diverse stakeholder set and moving them in an aligned fashion towards a common goal, which is really obviously tricky and gets more tricky as you grow in an organization. So those are the four. You know, these four behaviors all fall in the spectrum of changeable and you can certainly improve. And it but it requires significant focus. It's like the Ben Franklin, pick a given trait, work on it relentlessly, build a new habit. And there's plenty of work out there about how do you build a new habit, but it takes that level of focus. It's not something technical or for example, communication skills, you know, get some guidance on how to structure a presentation, get video, get some feedback. You can improve more easily. I mean, I would put that as the, you know, kind of easy category. These are things that I think because of the nature of them, require very discrete focus because you're making decisions at every moment. And you can practice and build better behaviors at every moment, but uh, it's not as simple as going to a training class, if that makes sense. I don't know how that that's what or meshes with what you've heard before, but I that's why I would describe them as changeable, which is really encouraging, but you, it's not easy. You got to really focus on okay, it. Okay. Well, so I, let's talk about each of the four there. Now, yeah, mm-hmm. let's, let's kind of fast forward a bit. Yeah, sure. Okay, very cool. So I'd love to chat about each of those four. But first, Kim, can you tell us a bit about that point that what gets you hired doesn't drive performance? Yeah, of course. Yeah, so we gathered outcome, outcome data around who was hired and not hired. We also gathered were they, did they exceed performance expectations, meet or not meet. And what we found is those kind of buildable muscles, those four behaviors that matter, were all correlated with high performance. But only one of them was actually correlated with what gets you hired. 
Interestingly, and that was reliable delivery. In our, you know, in our conversations, we also talked to board members. We reviewed a suite of 70 CEO firings. So we spoke with the board to, to get underneath what drove that. And really what you hear is reliable delivery clearly is important in delivering performance, but it's also something that exudes safety in the process of hiring. If you're someone who has met or exceeded expectations across your career, managed that effectively, put in rhythms, cadences, et cetera, for your organization to deliver, you are someone who's going to make the board feel very safe. And they feel very nervous in that critical decision around who should lead the company. And so safety is something that you can play to by ensuring reliable delivery. Uh, The thing that did pop out that is a big driver of getting you hired, but is not correlated with high performance, is likability. So the warmth and energy you exude in the interviews really matters. And if you combine that with the safety of reliable delivery, you end up as an individual that the board wants to back. So while being likable doesn't help you deliver results, we actually did a little HBR, a little piece around being too nice can get you in trouble. Being very likable in an interview does work to your advantage. At least that's what our data looks now, like. That's so intriguing, Kim. And I try to be nice and I I think I'm often likable. And so I'm wondering, is it, is it sort of a no correlation or like a negative correlation? Like I'd be better off if I'm a little meaner. <laughs> <laughs> well, it depends if you want to get hired or if you want to perform. <laughs> perform. I would say, you know, the trick, there's nothing right or wrong about being nice. The trick is... I think what we've seen and what we wrote about in that piece was individuals who prioritize affiliation, who are motivated to affiliate, who define success as being liked by all, are unlikely to make the difficult calls when you're by definition going to disappoint a given stakeholder group or individual. There are natural tensions in a business, always, between manufacturing and sales. I mean, you fill them in. There, There are always natural tensions. And you, as a leader of an organization, are having to make difficult calls that won't make everyone happy. And by definition, humans don't like to change. If you're trying to improve your organization, again, there's going to be resistance to that. And you cannot have as your primary goal affiliation and achieve the level of progress that is likely demanded by your shareholders or whatever your governance structure. All right. Noted. Point taken. Thank you. So I think we hit the point about the role is more accessible pretty well. So so let's talk a bit about th- these buildable muscles. So decisiveness, adaptiveness, reliable delivery, and engaging for results. Could you give us maybe a picture for, uh, first of all, what does great look like versus, you know, okay, because I, I think sometimes many people would say, yeah, I'm decisive. Sure. You know, I deliver reliably. <laughs> and so I th- have a feeling though, you've got a, a clearer picture on what great really looks like here. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, fundamentally, and I, I can't underscore this because this was enough because this was the the real insight and surprise for us. Decisiveness is about speed and not about perfectionism right? And ensuring you have gathered the nth degree of data, that you are 99.5% sure that this is the right direction. The really good decisiveness looks like willingness to move with 60% of the data. It looks like 
willingness to push decisions down when you recognize they are not a CEO level decision or you get fill in your level leader decision. You streamline what you are deciding so that others in your organization can speed up, make quicker decisions and not everything is being elevated. For example, the other litmus test that you see in really decisive leaders is they really have a way of cutting through the noise, which helps them speed up their decision making. And the way that they do this is really having a very crystal clear picture of value drivers in their business. And they have almost like an inherent formula in their head. These things matter. These other things don't. They're very relentless about focusing on what matters. And they understand the things that will move the needle and they focus their decisions there. You know, a couple of leaders I really loved speaking with, they, I mean, they talked about continuously asking certain questions of themselves. One of the leaders of a tech business told me, she said, look, I sensed that I was struggling with a call. I just, if I had to make it in the next 30 seconds, what would it be? And then nine times out of 10, I would push myself to just do it. Another leader said, I basically, he's, he's like, I tested myself with two, two questions. The first is articulating what, what is the downside of getting this decision wrong and weighing that with how much am I going to slow others down by delaying my decision here? And he's like, by thinking about those two dimensions, I was able to push myself to move forward, even if it made me uncomfortable that I wasn't a hundred percent sure. And I think they recognize they're setting the pace and the cadence of the organization. So if they're slow, if they're asking for the 100th page of analysis, the reality is the organization is going to adopt those behaviors. And so it's not just yourself. It's actually the signal and the the ripple effect that you're sending throughout your organization. Kim, that's dead on. Thank you. Please unpack the others just like this. Yeah. So let's let's tackle adapt. This one's really... I was least surprised about this, just given the amount of writing out there. And I should have noted, when we did the exploratory research with SAS, they actually unleashed text-based analytics on our data. Our data is text, which, you know, frankly, we couldn't have done 10 years ago because they've progressed so much. But what, what we did is said, here's the outcome data, here's the text-based data, have at it, apply your models. You know, they do all the predictive fraud analytics for credit card companies. They have uh, really fascinating, it's for a separate conversation, <laughs> tools that they can apply. We did not, they did exploratory research. We did not say, hey, go prove that adaptive behaviors are important. They actually came back to us. And that's why we were so surprised with some of these things. But of those, surprise, this was the least surprising. <laughs> Richard, Free, I think his name is Richard Foster of Yale. He did a piece of work that showed the lifespan of leading companies has shrunk I mean, then less than half. I think it was like from 60-something years to 20-something years over the last couple of decades. Just the pace of what is happening in the market right now demands a level of adaptation that just wasn't there for, you know, the prior generation. So this is, you know, I don't think it's very surprising, but really two elements are two litmus tests, I would say, that I saw in very adaptive leaders. The first is that they had an openness, self-awareness, and willingness to change personally. They were really humble to recognize that they do not know what they need to know, almost by across the board. And so what you found is a willingness to let go of past behaviors and practices, even if they had been successful. They were really good about proactively thinking about what can destroy my business. What about personally my behaviors that have led me to this place but may not lead me to the next ambitious goal? And so they're willing to let go of, you know, I think it's the ultimate who has the book, like what 
got you here won't get you there. I mean, these leaders practice that, and it's a really difficult thing to do. So that's one litmus is willing to let go of what got you to the seat, essentially, and, and relentlessly question that. The second is they adopt more of a future orientation. So you see these leaders really embodying, like, there's no one else thinking 10 to 15 years in the future, most likely, other than the CEO. And so they don't give up time with the customers. They double the amount of time they are thinking one, two, five years out compared to the amount of time they spent looking out to the future in the role before CEO. So you see them shifting their attention to a longer time frame when they get into the seat. So those are a couple, yeah, a couple things to call out on adaptiveness. Got it. Thanks. Yeah. And then, you know, reliable delivery, this is... (laughs) This is the most boring one. However, it is actually, I, I think, the most important. If you look at leaders who did this well, were 15 times more likely to be in the high performance group. So it was a really it was strong, a strong behavior, and it also helps you get hired. So it's boring, but it's important. <laughs> and essentially, to, re- to deliver reliably, There's a couple things I'd unpack here. The first is these leaders are really good about setting expectations as opposed to letting expectations get set for them. So they're actually very proactive and front foot around anticipating and setting expectations of those around you. And that's important to note because as a CEO, you have a board. Call it, I don't know, somewhere between four and 15, some public boards are way more, individuals coming from a different seat with a different set of goals, a different set of expectations. And the CEOs who are successful really actively spend time setting an aligned set of expectations for performance in a way that allows them to deliver. And this is not a one and done. They do it over time as the context changes. So I remember talking with a board member who was really frustrated with his CEO. And I was like, wait, wait, I saw your original value creation plan. Like he hit that. And the board member said, yeah, but the market changed. It actually opened up and this happened to this competitor. They went away. It actually should have been bigger. And that dissonance between changing expectations created friction and frankly sucked up time and was unproductive for the CEO to deal with on the board. And had they been ahead of that and proactively shaped that, they could have minimized kind of the friction and transaction cost. The other element to reliable delivery is, I think, more of the mundane one, which is these leaders try to show up consistently and build consistent expectations into their organization. And this removes ambiguity. So for people who are operating day-to-day, if you are working for a leader who you don't know who's going to, is Jekyll or Hyde going to show up today? Is your expectations of the questions you ask of my PL going to be different than they have been the last month? It gets, it, it is hard to operate effectively. You're constantly guessing. You're in a world of ambiguity. It does not lead to your highest performance. And so these leaders recognize how showing up consistently removes some of that ambiguity for the team. And the clearer they can set expectations, they use scorecards, they use metrics, they give clear feedback. They hold people accountable. And if that's consistent, the organization operates at a higher performance level and a higher capacity than they would otherwise. Right. Makes sense. So a couple things there. Yeah. And the last one is engaging for results. And as I mentioned, this is really around how do I herd the cats to a given bowl of food? (laughs) (laughs) The simplest way. And then the cats all want to go in different directions. And some like mice and some like chicken. I'm making this up. 
But basically, you do need to spend the time with the important stakeholders, whether that be key leaders, key regulators, key industry titans, key board members, to really gain their perspective. And oftentimes, there's a lot out there around how do you empathize, you imagine what it's like in someone's shoes. Actually, these leaders are actively asking questions and getting the perspective directly from the individuals at hand. They're not imagining, they're asking smart questions and listening, and they're using that intelligence and understanding of that individual or group of individuals' goals to harness that knowledge to move them towards a given intent. They have a goal for most interactions. They know what they're trying to get or like where they're trying to get to or where they're trying to move this group or individual to. And they're very um, deliberate about using the individual's motivations and ambitions, knowing very clearly what the intent is, and then putting rhythms into the business or into those relationships that move those stakeholders forward in an aligned fashion. Okay. And, and you mentioned a, a part of that in book there is that there's some conflict, differences of opinion about what's best and, and one stakeholder over another. And, and how do they navigate that well? Yeah. Well, sometimes they don't. We could talk about a bunch of examples of that. But when they do, they are very good at, again, it's kind of links back to kind of expectation setting. They are very good at listening, gathering input, understanding goals, and finding other ways to move individuals towards that goal and logically explain why this is best for the enterprise overall. They have an ability to link it to what's in it for me, me being the person sitting across from the table from them. And they have an ability to make it relevant to that individual or group's context. And that requires really listening, not just Imagining what that, you know, imagining the goals, imagining the context. They have to really understand that stakeholder group or individual and find a way to translate the goals into something that's meaningful, like that's in it for that party. And that does not mean not being disappointed, but it does mean being logical, transparent, setting expectations and delivering and linking it to some sort of objective of that party. Understood. Well, well, that's a nice lineup there. And so in addition to sort of these keys, you mentioned some handicaps and and career catapults. Could you maybe comment on one of each of those? Yeah, yeah. There were some other fun analytics we did on the data. The hidden handicaps are really around what can stop you from getting the job that you want. And there's some basic I mean, I would call these like linguistic or superficial factors that we saw that have little or nothing to do with what it takes to perform as a CEO, but can trigger oh, biases. Sounds like a process. quick win. What are they? Yeah. So a couple that I, I'll call out. One is using pretentious language or kind of ivory tower, elevated affectation, like when using too big a words, not being down to earth actually hinders you and hurts you in the hiring process. So the more snooty you sound, 
less likely you are to be hired. <laughs> yeah, the other one we saw, which I took to heart, being a former management consultant, the more platitudes, consultees, and acronyms you use, the less likely you are to be hired. So all those consultants out there, be wary of the consultant knees when you're going for CEO roles. Okay, noted. Well, so, so we can just cut those out. And, and it's and it's funny because people they kind of become attached to them. It's like they're these the platitudes are, are their friends or, or or sort of comforting in a way. Well, that's a whole other conversation. I think they're comforting because they give a little bit of an umbrella of ambiguity. <laughs> so they're they're, yes. they're less kind of conflicted. Precise. Yeah. They're not specific. Well, and exactly, they they play it safe, and as a result, they're not precise or specific. And that I think is what really triggers the reaction. The more precise and specific and down to earth you can be, the more safety you exude. The more ambiguous, amorphous, hard to pin down. That not elicit a sense of safety by your interviewer, if that makes sense. They're not sure of what they're going to get, I guess. Is the way well, and I it. love it when it's dirt simple. Like, customers don't like this. We need to change that. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> yeah. Versus, yeah. Versus the, well, we leveraged this and created amplitude in that. Uh-huh. And- <laughs> What? <laughs> what did you do? <laughs> yeah. And then and then some of the basics came through that I think everybody is aware of, but the more meaningful numbers you can use, the better. You want to be memorable and relevant was what we found. And so if you're coming from an organization that's not well known, you don't have an in with the organization to the extent that you have, and we call it kind of bona fides. But if there are ways to to articulate a stamp of approval, from somebody who's respected by the organization you're hiring or interviewing for, finding those connections and then being memorable and relevant and numeric where you can in terms of your impact and what you've done in the past are all good good things to file away for your next job interview. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I see that, uh, well, I've coached many, many people on the resumes and it makes a world of difference between to say improved to cut $20 million improved. Like, oh, okay. It's sort of night and day. And I even see that myself. I was buying paper today and it's like, I don't know what paper to get. Give, give me the numbers that show it's great. The, oh, the thickness, the brightness, the whiteness. Okay. That's a good paper. And I think it's the same for humans, even though we're hard to quantify, we want something that, that gives us that comfort. Like this person has what it takes. Yes. And even better, cutting twenty million in cost off a base of a hundred million versus off a base of a billion actually means something different to me. And I want to see that you can cut it out of a hundred million, <laughs> ideally in a sustainable way or in a way that predecessors haven't done. So I also think the sharing some of that context, like why do these numbers actually matter? Why are they great? is also really important. Excellent. Well, well, Kim, tell me, is there anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about a couple of your favorite things? Well, I think I would just say for everybody who wants to be awesome at their job, don't just accept any role. Like pick the right role for your strengths and your skills and your values. I mean, one of the myths that we bust in here in this book is there's really no, we call it the, like the all-weather CEO. I mean, the reality is I've met fabulous, really great leaders that wouldn't be great in the context for which we were making a hiring decision. 
And that doesn't mean they're a great, not a great leader. It just means that that wouldn't have been a good fit for them for what the job needed relative to their skill set. So be choosy and be thoughtful about where you can be at your best. Okay, excellent. Well, now, Kim, can you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? Ooh, I've got one actually from my 10-year-old daughter, <laughs> if that's okay. Her quote is, you can still taste when you take small bites which has been a philosophical quote that has it became philosophical for me around how much do I bite off career-wise? How much do I bite off in terms of my calendar and schedule? And the reality is I can still taste performance success impact even if I take small bites. <laughs> I love it. Thank you. <laughs> so not a famous quote, but it's important to me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's that's fun. Thank you. And how about a favorite book? Oh, I've got a lot. I think I saw somewhere that maybe you've had your first child. So yes. I'll call out two. One is called Nurture Shock. I think it was by Poe Bronson and Ashley Merriman. Data-based research on parenting. Oh, cool. So that could be up your up your alley. The other one, I have a, a 10-year-old girl. There's a great book called Untangled by Lisa Demore, who, again, database research on how to navigate the teen years. And then I would say from a business perspective, I love Growth Mindset by Carol Dweck. Right. Well, thank you. And how about a favorite tool, something that helps you be awesome at your job? So I use an app called Strides, which is, I think, originally an exercise app, but you can customize your goals. I'm very goal-driven, and I use it to track nights away from my family so that if a per- I can, you know, particular week is horrible, I can zoom out and look at it by month, by quarter, by year, and realize I'm actually still on track. Oh, cool. And how about a favorite habit, a, a personal practice of yours that's helpful? A personal practice is about every two to three years. I actually try to take a recharge period. And I find that I am a much more effective kind of leader and advisor and coach when I have a chance to catch my breath. And that's a pattern actually that extends across my career. And how long is a recharge period? It's varied. So anywhere, but sizable. So anywhere from four to six weeks to four to six months. And so you're just not working during that time? Yeah, I'm just not working. That's awesome. I'm gearing up for one this summer, actually, in late summer to, again, just unplug. I do a lot of fiction reading. I tend to have a few personal goals in that time, whether it's like reconnecting with family or exercise, athletic type goals. And then I come back kind of a new human. It's hard to do in some roles, but if you're, I'm always at a point of change. If I'm changing roles, changing companies, I always try to build that into the process. Oh, very cool. Thank you. And is there a particular nugget that you share with some of this work that really seems to connect and resonate with folks, getting them maybe quoting yourself back to you? That's who I would call out engage for impact rather than affinity, which we talked about earlier. The second is connect before you correct. When you're providing feedback to your team, connect before you correct. It's also applicable on the home front with your kids, actually. Well, I think we have a whole episode on this. Now, I'm thinking that that's true kind of on the macro scale. Hey, you want to have a deep, solid, firm foundation relationship before you you provide constructive feedback. Otherwise, it will often be sort of projected like, well, screw that jerk. They don't know anything. Yes. So, but is it also... How are you thinking about it in the micro context? Like, I'm about to deliver a correction. What should I do beforehand in this very hour? In the micro 
understanding what's going on in their world. So oftentimes they've had a terrible shock to their life and they've had a bad performance for the last couple of weeks and someone passed away or they, their dog died or fill in the blank. Take the time to see what's going on with them. Assume positive intent before you jump on the critical feedback. Thank you. And Kim, if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? So I'd point them to ceonextdoorbook.com for more information about the book. All right. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs? I would say, you know, the whole notion of you're destined to be a great leader is false. And so my challenge or call to action is while there's no perfectly planned or carved plan, you know, there are ways to get stronger and make better choices. So it's, it's really just an inspirational evaluate the opportunities ahead and put yourself in positions where you can excel. Beautiful. Well, Kim, this has been a lot of fun. Thank you for sharing these research insights and good luck with all you're up to and, and have fun with the next recharge period. Yeah, thank you. I will. I really loved how adaptability is one of the core principles that makes CEO successful, which is pretty counterintuitive because you think the CEO has all the answers. He or she knows what to do and where to go and confidently, boldly charges forward with that brilliant answer. And yet often what makes a CEO effective is saying, yeah, I don't know that. And I thought that was pretty encouraging. Whenever you feel maybe a little bit of pressure, like, no, I don't, I don't think I have the answer and maybe I'm supposed to have the answer. Maybe I should fake it. No. You know, do what effective folks do, which is is be humble and admit you need to go get some knowledge gaps filled and proceed that away. So good stuff from Kim. Hope you dug that. And again, if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we've referenced, it's at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F280. And if you haven't already, I hope you'll push subscribe. You'll hear from our next guest. It is Annie Duke. Annie's got some brilliant perspective when it comes to decision-making that she honed while becoming a World Series of Poker champion and has really thoughtfully crafted some some great guidelines in terms of, of how to think in bets, as she calls it, such that you can get real about your uncertainty and approach things sensibly and build upon some of these themes of, of humility and often learning and growing about boosting decision quality as you do. So great stuff from Annie. I hope to catch you there. Peace. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.